It's been 20 years since the terrorist attacks on 9-11. Where were you that day? I can tell you that I was sitting in English class at James F. Dowdy School. I can tell you about the fear and uncertainty that I felt, as I'm sure most 8th graders felt, as we sat glued to the TV. That same fear and uncertainty that I'm sure the rest of the world felt. But despite that fear, despite that uncertainty, the attacks that morning meant that for some, it was time to go to work. I'm Master Sergeant Andy Sinclair, and this is episode 55 of the Maniac Radio Show. Colonel Ian Gillis, Vice Wing Commander of the 101st Air Fielding Wing, had been training his entire career in the unfortunate event that tragedy would strike, and was one of the maniacs that took to the skies in rapid response. At the time, I was the Chief of Air Crew Scheduling. We had just come off a drill weekend where we'd had a large exercise. That morning, we had some training scheduled uh, down in the comm flight, so I was actually down in the comm flight classroom. And uh, I remember the giant voice announcements uh, with, uh, you know, calling people. Um, and uh, the class I was in, a couple of people got called out. Um, and, you know, I didn't really pay much attention to it, right? You, you, people need to be in offices and things like that. And then all of a sudden, I got, I got called out. Uh, so I went back to the scheduling office, um, and we had a TV in the office, and it was, uh, you know, showing uh, the towers um, that had already been hit. And, um, you know, at the time, I remember thinking, wow, um, you know, they're really playing this exercise up. You know, they're, they're piping in CCTV with, uh, you know, this video on it. That's, that's really realistic. I, you know, I, I thought the exercise was over. Um, and then, you know, somebody broke the news to me that, that the towers had been hit. Um, and uh, we immediately, you know, went into action. Um, we had several jets already airborne that day, one that was going uh, TDY for a, a business effort um, that got uh, diverted in to, to give fuel. Uh, we had another aircraft um, that was just doing a local AR that had, that had gotten diverted into New York to, to, uh, to help. Um, and then we had three jets that we generated that day. Um, and we were looking for crews to, uh, to put on those jets. Um, and I, I paired up with another um, member from the squadron that was there that day, and we, uh, we generated an aircraft. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point, you're, as you're out pre-flighting the aircraft, getting it ready to go, you're kind of cut off from everything. You don't hear what's going on and, and stuff like that. And so um, our crew chief on the ground was in a, in a pickup truck, and um, he would turn the radio up and, and key his mic so that we could hear what was going on. <clears throat> um, of the three jets that generated that day, uh, one took off pretty quickly, um, and then another one took off, and then we got called to come back into operations. And... We traded in um, our peacetime communications kit for a wartime kit. Um, and that, you know, when you, you train for that kind of stuff all the time, and then, you know, when, when it actually happens, and it happens over your own country, um, you know, as they say, it gets real. And, and you think, wow, what, what's going on? Um, and uh, as we were doing that, we got the call to launch our jet. Uh, so we, we ran down and scrambled and, and started and, uh, you know, started our, our day flying that day. It's probably safe to say that 
for anybody who has deployed before or been in a hairy situation, you know, your anxiety and your adrenaline and, uh, and your excitement and the uncertainty, all that is, is everyone kind of experiences that. The difference between kind of what you had gone through and your coworkers, your fellow maniacs went through uh, versus what that would be like now a days is another added emotion uh, exponentially greater back then is fear. And, and the reason why, and the reason why I say that is because you're one of the primary means of communication and getting your information was through CCTV or through word of mouth and, and hearing about it. So the fear of the unknown and not knowing what's going on versus now I can pick up my phone and see what's going on overseas instantly. Oh yeah. You know, none of us had smartphones. Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, um, you know, when you when you deploy into a combat environment, you have an expectation, right, uh, of what's going to go on and, and what you might face over there. Um, but when you talk about attacks on our own soil um, using civilian airliners, that w- you know that was a whole new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody anticipated it. Nobody understood what it was going to be about. Um, and you you know you're talking about not even in a deployed environment. That's this is our homeland, mm-hmm. um, and that that was a a difficult transition to make. Um, we, we made it very fast, and and I don't really know that we really thought too much about it in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, until we until we got airborne. Mm-hmm. Um, when we, you know, it's standard practice to uh, to ask for taxi clearance and takeoff clearance and all that kind of stuff, um, day in and day out. Um, when we called for taxi clearance that day, the controller said, "You're cleared all taxiways, cleared any runway." Um, cleared to contact tactical. What does that last part mean? Uh, so, in other words, the controller was telling us to that we could just uh, immediately contact our tactical controller. Um, okay. w- we heard that, mm-hmm. and we taxied out. And normal habit is to switch to towers. You get to the end of the runway and ask for clearance to to take off. Um, and we got down to the end, and we switched to tower, and we, you know, said, "Hey." Uh, main whatever um requesting uh you know number one we're ready to go and uh, the controller came across again somewhat annoyed this time and said hey you're you're cleared any runway cleared immediate departure contact tactical which is something you guys never heard that before never heard that before right you never get you know essentially we were told you can have the airfield do whatever you want with it and you're cleared unrestricted to go take off and do whatever you want mm-hmm. um and, and uh, Rick Thompson was the other pilot on the jet, and I remember kind of looking at him with that kind of bewildered look on my face. Did we just get cleared to do whatever we want? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we did. We took off, immediately switched to um, the GCI controller, the ground control intercept, um, uh, Huntress. And um, they vectored us down uh, towards Boston, and we serviced... Uh, the fighters that were protecting Logan. Um, and, uh, you know, it starts to get even realer at that point because um, those fighters uh, are essentially shadowing civilian airliners. Um, and their orders are if the airliner diverts off of their approach into Boston, you're supposed to shoot them down. That's crazy. Um, so, you know, we were weapons free over the United States. Um, and again, never before 
in art history, right? And, and not again, not yeah. since then. And not, yeah. and not since then, thank, thankfully. Right. Um, as we were sitting in the orbit taking care of our fighters, um, one of the jets that had already been airborne that day and had landed at McGuire to get gas um, was on its way back to Bangor. Um, and of course, because they had their peacetime communications kit, um, you know, they were being identified as not, uh, you know, not squawking appropriately. Um, and one of our fighters that we were servicing got sent to, to go identify them. Wow. Um, and I remember getting on our, you know, our local common frequency, um, and saying, Hey grinder, you're about to have company, you know, do whatever they say. You're, you're not squawking the right squawk right now. Right. Um, and you know, of course they go up and they find the main tail flash and, Mm -hmm. you know, identify the crew and, Mm -hmm. you know, away they go, but you know, still a little scary at that point. Right. Cause you know, we're weapons free across the United States and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our guys have been identified as a potential target. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and, and from where we were, we were well away from New York. We could see the smoke. Really? Um, in Massachusetts or from? Yeah. Yeah. From where we were, you know, in our, in our orbit area. We were mm-hmm. not quite on Boston. We were a little south and, and west of Boston is where they'd set us up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you could see the smoke on the horizon. Wow. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. So at that yeah. point, like that one day had shaped everything that you know now, right? Change, change the face of the way we do business and, and how we employ and deploy, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, from that point forward, we set up, uh, we ended up doing what we call combat air patrols over major cities for quite a while. Um, this unit participated in that. Uh, we were flying sorties throughout the night, um, you know, almost constantly having an airplane airborne. Um, we were responsible for... Um, Early on, we did a little bit over Boston, but then New York kind of became our emphasis, and we spent a lot of time uh, overhead New York. Uh, and and from that point forward, we had a Homeland Defense tanker on alert. Um, and that that number has shifted with the number of jets we've had on alert, um, but you know that it's been a constant battle rhythm since then. I can't imagine what was going through your guys' mind when, you, especially when you got up in the plane, you saw that smoke on the horizon. Like I would, I think probably. Sh- shock is probably an understatement. I mean, yeah. Uh, aviators have a tendency to uh, compartmentalize stuff. I mean, you, you, you latch on to the most important thing that sits in front of you and you take care of that and then you move on. Um, and we tend to take things that don't fit in that immediate need and we box them up and we push them aside. Um, and I'd, I'd say there was a lot of that that day, you know, just not being able to wrap your brain around it all right, I've got a job to do. I've got to take care of, you know, my receivers. We'll box that up. We'll get to it later. Um, and it, it took a while to unpack that back box, most definitely. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure to this day if I really have been able to fully wrap my brain around it. Um, we've just kind of moved on. And that's what, I mean, I feel like that's what they pound into our brains, like, you know, your basic training courses and, and, and initial trainings is that like your, you know, cause you, there's only, there's, you can, there's nothing else you can do. You can either break down and it affects the mission, affects your coworkers, or you, you press on and let that training kick in muscle memory, I guess. But especially for you guys, I mean, the amount of training that the pilots have to do and, and, um, it's just, it's wild to think that 
you know, cause I, I remember that day as well. Um, but you never really stopped and thought about, you just knew the job was getting done. I think one of the points, um, or goals in this podcast is to, is to make people aware, especially the ones who weren't even born yet, the severity of what you guys kind of went through at that time. Um, especially where technology isn't the way it is now where you can get, like I said earlier, communication quick, fast, and really, really quick and easy across the board. But how did it affect your, not necessarily the rest of the wing, but how did that affect the rest of ops at that time? Like what was everybody else doing who wasn't flying? Uh, so by the time we got back and landed, um, we were already putting jets on alert. We were cocking jets on, um, putting crews into crew rest, um, cause we just didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, and we kind of maintained that rhythm of having jets set ready to launch, um, at a moment's notice. Um, and not just, you know, not just one, but I, you know, I think we probably had four or five sitting cocked on ready to take off at a moment's notice with a crew designated against it. Um, and we had varying levels of that, you know, we had crews actually on base ready to go. We had crews kind of queued up on a, on a short notice kind of pager type thing. Um, and then crews even ready to replace those should they get used and, you know, crew rested and stuff like that. Um, and then, like I said, we kind of moved into those combat air patrols where we were launching, um, you know, basically every six hours to to refuel uh, fighters in, a, in an air patrol over New York, uh, just, you know, looking for that next threat coming in it was active duty a part of that as well were they so the active duty uh showed up uh, four or five days i think after uh after the 11th um and they stayed with us for a while they they were the initial ones that started doing the combat air patrols um and uh you know we kind of raised our hand to to amc and said hey you know you got 10 tankers sitting here already. You just brought somebody in from McConnell, um, you know, with six more jets. We can do their work. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're here. We want to be part of the fight. Mm-hmm. And um, probably about a month, you know, it's quite a while ago, obviously, um, the McGuire, uh, the, uh, excuse me, the McConnell folks, um, you know, picked up and deployed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I probably can't tell you where they deployed now because I can't remember. Right. Um, I know that it was, you know, overseas. Yeah. I don't know if they were in Europe or if they went further in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, then the show was ours. You know, the the alerts and all the combat air patrols that were launched out of here were all uh, main tails. Sounds like a busy time um, for everybody. Very busy time, and as a scheduler, um, we had to manage all of that. Um, long days trying to p- fit all the pieces together and and keep the operation going. Um, and we would, you know, as a scheduler, we would try and get in the mix every once in a while to, you know, frankly, give the other folks a break um, and, you know, get away from the office a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember flying a lot of nights um, and uh, my, my parents are lived less than five minutes from the base here. Um, I live about 20 minutes from the base. Uh, so I would quite frequently just go over to their place and, and for lack of a better term, crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my mother would wake up in the morning and, and find me curled up on the couch in front of the fireplace or, 
sometimes I was just stretched out in front of the fire. <laughs> just trying to get some sleep. Just trying to get some Decompress sleep. Decompress a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, she'd say, hey, when do you have to be back to work? And I kind of look at my watch and I got, I got another hour, mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she'd uh, shake me awake, uh, you know, in time to get back to work. Um, so it, um, it really took us from being a guard unit that operates Monday through Friday to um, an integral part of the nation's defense that operates 24-7, 365. That, that was the beginning of our real, um, you know, op tempo here at home station. For every for everybody too, right? I mean, I, I, it's funny. I just talked to a gentleman yesterday down in Augusta. He was enlisted at the time, and he and he uh, when when the towers got hit, and uh, and he got augmented over over here to help with security uh, as an as a part of the brewer infantry unit. And, mm-hmm. just, and I had always heard stories about that. By the time I joined, the guy there there were none of them left. And there were the stories weren't always great. They were always <laughs> you know the army destroyed our Humvees and they destroyed this and destroyed that. But <laughs> the fact that it was kind of neat to me, appealing to me that you had this purple fighting force that was here to defend the base and it's kind of that was kind of cool and i've never actually met somebody i don't think i have i don't think i've ever met somebody that was a a soldier that was a part of that unit until yesterday so that was Mm kind of neat but so you know it seems to be um for everybody and i mean there were a lot of people that were mobilized right Mm -hmm. uh yeah and and uh you know again i i probably should have studied some of the facts and figures before i sat down but uh uh, you know, after that, after that initial the towers fall and we kind of stand up and start doing that, that 24-7 ops, um, you know, we had just tons of people on orders supporting that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the base was active, you know, 24-7. It, it wasn't like, mm-hmm. you know, you'd roll in at 3 o'clock in the morning this place would be quiet. No, we were recovering a jet, maybe launching a jet, putting gas on a jet, um, you know, there was, there was stuff going on. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and then you know, kind of fast forward to 2003 when we, when we started to posture to, to enter Iraq again and, and, uh, and start that effort. Um, the amount of C-17s that came through just ramped up huge trying to prepare for that action. Um, and, you know, we kind of went from the combat air patrol piece to the airbridge piece, mm-hmm. um, and we transitioned right again into uh, 24/7, 365, and and even more intense. Um, when we were doing the caps, we were launching, you know, maybe three, four sorties a day. The jet would take off and go spend, you know, four or five hours in a cap, and then come back. Um, in the airbridge, we were launching 17, 20 sorties a day, um, and it would take off, go hit a, a receiver. Uh, 100,000 pound offload maybe and then land back here um, and that cycle might be as quick as less than two hours um, jet hits the ground put gas on it and launch it again um, so it, you know really we didn't start slowing from that pace until you know 2007 time frame um, 2008 and then it kind of starts slowing down um, and about that time, we converted also as an E-model unit. Um, a lot of times, they didn't want an E-model over in the in in the AOR because uh, only guard unit, guardmen could fly it. We were the only ones qualified in that oh, airframe. Yeah. Um, so we were kind of kept on the periphery a lot 
in the AOR. Um, well, in that time frame, in the 2008 time frame, we converted uh, to the R model, mm-hmm. and that's what everybody else flies. Um, active duty reserve, and you know, what the guard at that point was flying it too. Um, and so we see, as that air bridge piece kind of comes to a close, we see the AOR piece start to bloom up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that really didn't die down that much until you know the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you if you go pre nine eleven, we're kind of this guard unit doing our training thing. Post nine eleven, we're operational. Um, and we're, we're at a, at a sprint pace and, uh, you know, I think we probably sprinted for 10 plus years. Um, and then, then I think maybe we dropped to a marathon pace Mm -hmm. and it isn't until, you know, the last year or two that the unit's actually been able to step back and we're still not the, you know, I like to say we're still not the sleepy little guard unit that does nothing but training but we're closer to that than than we ever were mm-hmm. um but uh as colonel Barassa says we've never taken a knee right even even under covid we didn't take a knee mm-hmm. uh, we continue to train we continue to do our homeland defense mission we continue to deploy folks um so it it it's changed it definitely changed and that, that was going to be my next question was that the uh you guys uh dsgs full-timers doesn't matter um i would imagine a lot of you and I could be wrong. Um, I'm trying to rack my brain. Uh, a lot of you, that, that, that was probably your first time um, not going from zero to 60, but going from zero to 1,000 and staying, like you just said, at that at that um, sprinting pace for as long as you guys did. I mean, that, that's got to be wild. And that's got to take a toll on, on airmen and maniacs, their, fam- their families. I mean, I can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah definitely did. Civil, uh, civilian employers, I mean, wow. Yeah, big, in, big, big impact overall. And I don't know that we'll... I don't know that we'll ever know the real, real impact because mm-hmm. there's so much of it that that are second and third order effects. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, my kids grew up post 9/11. You know, I, I had a daughter that was born in '99, and the, the rest of my kids were born after 9/11, um, and uh, they they don't know anything but. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that, you know, my father being in the guard and me being in the guard two completely different animals mm-hmm. um, you know he he grew up in the uh, Korea Vietnam Cold War era um, never having really left Bangor per se I mean TDYs yes mm-hmm. but not not like we do mm-hmm. um, and even you know post desert storm uh, you know he remarked that as I was a first lieutenant I'd had more TDYs and gone more places than he did in his entire 34 year career. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to go post 9-11, you know, it's almost as dramatic a shift there mm-hmm. from the post desert storm to the post 9-11 era mm-hmm. in, in TDYs and operational uh, missions and that kind of stuff. Well, that's, and that, to me, that's the, kind of the, the beauty of the, the um, I don't know, is that even a word, the adaptiveness or the, the adapting ability that we have in the guard to go from being like you said, a sleep, kind of a sleepy little guard unit, um, to uh, to be able to, to be able to go and fight tonight at a moment's notice, and the fact that we do train to the point where you guys were kind of on autopilot, no pun intended, when all that had kind of gone down, it just goes to show you that you know that that that's the importance behind training. Um, the same thing on the range when you when you know 
crap hits the fan in real life, you want to be able to know your sports acronyms and get that weapon firing as fast as you can. Um, that, that's wild to me. That, that's what's cool. And so you, you know, no one likes to do it. No one likes to train and be ready to, to go. But when it happens, like in that, in that situation, thinking about the impact that it had, not only on the base, but the families and again, civilian employers, that, that's crazy. Um, and, uh, and commendable to everybody that was able to step up to that. And everybody after that, that rose their right hand because they, they wanted to fight and, and do their parts, everything. That's pretty crazy, which kind of leads into my next topic. Um, be given the position that you're in now and seeing how much we have changed and had to adapt that same word adapt over the last 20 years um, you've seen a lot and you've been through a lot and you've been to a lot of places and you've seen how the maniacs operate and how the whole dynamic has shifted uh, to in some cases, deploying more than our counterparts with active duty and, and reservists. Um, I've got buddies who are active duty that have the 15 years in, like myself, that haven't deployed yet. I mean, that's wild to me. Um, but again, I, you know, so it's neat to see how we are, how how involved we are with today's fight. Um, and for you and your position, you you see that exponentially more than most of us do. So, what is it like for you, Colonel, um, to see where we've shifted over the last 20 years? To see the overall overall change um that that's a tough one uh you know i think as i look back um you know obviously i i started in the cold war era um and uh there's a, a pride in what we do um we always wanted to be the best at whatever we did and as as maniacs um and i think Post 9/11, we just kind of continued that mantra, that that desire to be the best and do the best we could. Um, and so, when you take a maniac and put them in a deployed environment, um, they're not just looking to do the job and go back to their rack at night. They're looking to uh, leave it better than they found it. They're looking to do more and improve the process and and do stuff like that. So. Um, you know, for our unit in particular, I think it was an opportunity to showcase what we're all about. Um, and, you know, we talk about the tradition of excellence and, and the maniac symbol is, is known throughout the world, right? Um, and I, I think the unit pivoted a little bit and, and got into that mindset of being in that deployed environment, but we took our traditions and we just took them with us when we deployed. Mm -hmm. um, that ability to go out and do more and um, and be the best we can be, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the unit members um, look forward to deploying. They, they want that opportunity to shine and to show um, what they're capable of, um, and it's a growth opportunity. You you know you as you say you do all that training right back here, and you're like ah, I couldn't can I really do it? Mm. Well, deploying is an opportunity to, for you to show yeah. I did learn what I was supposed to learn in tech school, and I can do my job mm -hmm. in that deployed environment. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that our unit at its core changed. I think we just adapted to what the new reality is. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we took those core tenets of what we always have been, and we took them on the road with us, and, and uh, we're able to showcase what we do. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, you know, and I think that uh, 
it's a testament to how everybody kind of came together too. I mean, because again, um, it, when a disaster, you know, or something as big as the attacks on 9-11 happened, everybody came, kind of came together. And it, it, I just, the, like the amount of, the, the, uh, the number of cogs and spinning wheels that had to make everything work is just, that's what's mind boggling. It's enough to make someone go crazy. Um, but yeah, you, you talk about, um, on 9-11, and again, I may get the statistic wrong, but I, I believe it was a 98% recall rate. Wow. Um, so we, we had 98% of the wing reported for duty. Most of those people reported for duty before they ever got a phone call. Mm-hmm. They saw the news, they packed their bag, and they came to work. Um, that's, that's a maniac. Mm-hmm. Um, they see a problem. They want to. They want to help. They want to fix it. Um, and it's just what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, that's who we are at heart. Yeah, that's enough. That, that's that's got to be pretty. Uh, it's got to make you guys proud, I mean, especially again the position you've been in. But as long as you've been in to see how everybody's kind of changed and been affected by that, that's pretty wild. With a career that you've had, what's that like? Looking back on that and how nine eleven has changed your experiences i mean um well i mean honestly it's hard to at this point in my career imagine not mm-hmm. right i mean i i've uh, 33 years i post 9-11 is more than half of my career so it, it's become the new normal mm-hmm. um i would say um as i look back on my career um you know, I used to say that I could see three different distinct changes in, in the world. I think it's almost four now. Um, Cold War, you know, where it's the big adversary and, and the guard will only get called if, uh, you know, if the Russians start rolling across the, uh, the Europe, you know, we'll, we'll get called and we're a reserve. Um, and then Desert Storm, uh, you know, I remember packing my bags a couple of times as a as a young enlisted troop. You know, hey, can you go? Yeah, yeah, I can go. And and I, you know, called back that afternoon with my bags packed. Oh, some other unit has already taken the the position. Um, but that post Desert Storm era, we were kind of a, a tactical reserve. Um, you know, not not getting used a whole lot, but kind of there if we needed to fill in for the active duty. And then post 9-11, um, we become an operational reserve or or almost an operational entity. Um, you know, still the notion is that the Guard is, is a reserve um, and only call, called on when needed, but more operationalized. In other words, you, you get called more often. And and honestly, I, I think we were just part of the total force at that point um, because, uh, you know, as I, as I look back, um, we were constantly in motion. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we were a reserve, um, you know, reserves don't get used for 20 years straight. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so I think we were part of the operational component uh, necessarily. So um, and then, you know, here we are. Uh, as we see the drawdown in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, um, the ops tempo is kind of falling back and maybe we are getting more into that reserve uh, here to help if necessary kind of thing. Um, 
but it, I'm not sure that we've really settled on what this new dynamic is going to be yet. And th- and that, again, that's got to take a toll on everybody because you, being the guard, you have. So we're doing our homes. We're, we're doing our home station here in Bangor, Maine. Our mission, day to day ops. We're doing our state mission. Um, you know, with natural disasters, God forbid something like that happens again. Um, so we have that that's expected of us. We have your uh, your patrolling missions uh, that are CONUS um, that are that are that you guys participated in, which is wild. And then to, to put the cherry on top, you guys are doing the same thing. You guys are flying overseas once it's the, uh, the deployment taskings are coming out. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's um, the fact that you guys went kind of we did we've been doing that for as long as we've been doing and doing it is at the caliber of excellence that we've been doing it at is, is just wild. That's crazy. And it's a good time. It's the third podcast in a row I've said this, but what an exciting time to be a maniac, to be a part of that tradition. Oh, it is. To see that. It's crazy. Yeah, definitely. From your perspective, how how did the events of 9-11 uh, impact the rest of the wing? Like, what was, what was that like? From Desert Storm to 9-11, I think what you saw is uh, the, the operational type deployments were for no-fly zones in, in Bosnia and Kosovo and uh, Northern Watch, Southern Watch for Iraq, and they were very um, aircrew maintenance-centric um, with some support folks that w- went with them, but that, that aviation package. Um, and then as we kind of get rolling post-9-11, um, you have those aviation packages that go out, but you also have um, all of the expeditionary combat support folks. Um, the the cops doing detainee moves and um, base defense uh, services folks going out and setting up, you know, services for uh, deployed environments. Um, personnelists going out and doing the uh, integration of folks and uh, in processing, out processing and and that kind of stuff, um, finance contractors. I mean, everybody kind of got involved in supporting operations overseas. Um, and that's, that's evolved. But I think, you know, again, going back to when I first started out here, you know, we never thought that would ever happen. Um, and if it did, it would, the mindset was the whole wing would pick up and go somewhere. Um, and post 9-11, you know, it was not uncommon for one person to leave from a squadron or a shop and and be, I don't want to say alone, but be the sole maniac mm-hmm. at that fob or at that uh, at that base. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's kind of continued. Um, I think the the pace has somewhat slowed um, with these reserve component mobilization periods. It kind of gets a little bit more predictable than it was at the beginning. Um, but we're still doing that, that kind of stuff. And we're still, uh, the aviation package is still being tasked to go out. Um, it's getting more predictable and the time, you know, between deployments, I think is expanding a little bit. Um, but we still have folks doing it. Um, you know, right now we have a few folks overseas right now and we're, we're about to enter that RCP period and, and we'll have more people going out the door. Um, we'll have our aviation package here heading out and, and they'll be gone for, um, you know, a, a six, a 60 day, 90 day time frame. Um, so it's, it's still maniacs are still on the road, still doing great things in that deployed environment. What's it like for you, uh, 
being the vice wing commander and seeing that nowadays with the operations, uh, you know, you, you kind of briefly touched on what it was like uh, post 9-11, but. Um, well, uh, uh, maybe a little bit of uh, sadness isn't the right word, but, um, you know, as a rated 06, I don't get to go do what I used to go do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no, nobody wants an, an old colonel mm-hmm. um, in the AOR. Um, so some of it's, uh, I wish I could still go and do, um, some of it's concern. Um, you know, I, I, I'm concerned for putting people in harm's way. Um, and maybe that's why I push a little harder for some training to make sure that we get the right training to folks, uh, so that they're prepared for when they get overseas. Um, and uh, a sense of pride, um, knowing that folks that I trained or trained with or deployed with um, are still going out and doing the mission. Um, and with a sense of purpose. I mean, we're, uh, we're part of the nation's defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and with, without us, um, the nation isn't as secure. Um, so that, that's maybe where that sense of pride comes from. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's going to leave you feeling a little uncertain, a little unweary, given that position you're in now, where you are sending people out the door. Whereas, like, so if I, if you send me to, we'll just say Kuwait tomorrow, and it's been years since you've been to Kuwait, it would you'd probably feel better about sending me to Kuwait if you had just been to Kuwait and you know what sure. to expect of your of your people. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, the the uh, the famous quote from Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore of the Vietnam War. In that book, we were soldiers once and young. When he was upset with when the, when the reporter had asked him, you know, why, why, you know, why are you upset? And he said because he uh, he, he didn't get to, he, he's not experiencing what his guys did, you know, experience on the ground, and, and that he, you know, a lot of them didn't make it home, and he wasn't one of them. That those are pretty powerful, you know. Mm. So that's that's kind of what um, you know I, I kind of attribute to it now is that it's got to be odd for you guys to, to send people out the door when you yourselves don't you can't see what. You know, yeah, that that's just it, and I guess that's the it's it's tough to express that, but um, mm-hmm. you know we're as senior leaders we're all confident in our ability to to be able to go out and do, and so you feel that that desire to still be a part of that, and um, you know I, I guess maybe I've been that person that wants to lead from the front, mm-hmm. and when I can't deploy with with my folks. Um, you, you you almost feel like you're you're not part of the team anymore, mm-hmm. um, and it it's a little scary because if you're over there, then you know what's going on, and you can you feel like maybe you have a sense of being able to help and and support the folks, and and what you got to do is just trust in their training and 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 the education that you've provided them mm-hmm. um, that they're going to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it is different. It's tough. Um, especially for those of us that have deployed so much to, uh, to not be doing it anymore. Um, doesn't quite feel right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and those leaders, those, you know, and, uh, senior NCOs or young officers that come back who did lead a team, you know, uh, in your absence where you couldn't be there, that's going to be a testament to you guys to know the current state of affairs that we've been in for the last 20 years um, and that adaptive change that we, that the maniacs have undergone to see that's good. That's got to just add to that pride bank to sit back and say, Holy crap. Like I, I kind of like we, we've, 
I've done my job right. Yeah, I guess is the best way to put it. So that's yeah, going to be definitely. a good feeling. So, um, yeah, we, we covered a lot, sir, and I appreciate your time. Is there is there anything you'd like to add? Anything you want to talk about in regards to the twenty year anniversary? Uh, I I think it's it'll be interesting. I think that uh, come September eleventh, um, that that's the weekend for us. We're going to have all of our maniac family here. Uh, I'm not sure what emotions are going to come out that day. Um, it's going to be a somber day. It's going to be a heavy day. Uh, just looking back on all that's occurred in the last 20 years and, um, and the cost to the nation, um, you know, uh, it's going to be a time for reflection. And uh, much like I think December 7th has been for World War II vets, um, September 11th is for, for our, our current veterans. Um, it, it's a day we're not going to forget. It's a day that we're going to continue to uh, pay attention to. Um, I don't like the term memorialize because um, I don't know that it's worthy of that, but recognize um, what that did for the nation and, and what that's caused in the preceding years. So um, I don't think you're going to see a lot of fanfare here on base, um, a lot of pomp and circumstance. I, I think it's going to be quiet respect um, and, and moments of silence on that day. Um, and with that, we look back at where we were and where we're going um, and, and realize that maniacs are resilient. Maniacs are good at what we do. Um, we should be proud of what we've done, and we should be excited for the future of what's, what's to come. That's the quote of all quotes right there. <laughs> that, uh, that's awesome, sir. I, I do appreciate your time. I appreciate you um, you sharing your story and your perspective of, of everything that happened 20 years ago on uh, September 11th. And uh, I encourage for those who are listening to this podcast to share this amongst your peers and your family and your coworkers and your subordinates um, because it is a, it is a prideful, um, like the colonel said, it's a somber moment, but it's a prideful moment too, just to look back and see everything that we've done. Um, as, a, as a maniac family. It's pretty awesome. So uh, thank you for doing this, sir. My pleasure. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks. All right, sir. Colonel Gillis is one of many with unique 9-11 stories that will forever be engraved in the minds of those involved. Today is 9-11. Be sure to talk with your coworkers, your family, ask them where they were, ask them about their story. 20 years that followed that tragic day shaped who we are as maniacs, a pivotal moment in our history. Like Colonel Gillis, there are those who knew the wing in two ways, pre and post. For others, like Senior Master Sergeant Dave Kempton, all he has known is the post era. And like most, he watched it unfold on the TV. Except he was in basic training at Lackland, entering the gateway to the Air Force with one mindset, and leaving the gateway to the Air Force with a different mindset. You can check out his story as well as others in our new Never Forget mini documentary. We released it September 10th, and I recommend that you go check that out. As always, be sure to take care of others and be sure to take care of yourself. Have a safe drill. And never forget 9-11.